excited to bring you a new season of the Just Admit It podcast. But first, a quick note before we get into the episode. We'll be answering listener questions throughout the season. So please submit any questions for our team of experts to podcast at ivywise.com. Thanks for tuning in. And now for the episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome to semester five premiere of Ivy Wise Just Admitted podcast, where former admission deans and directors of admission give expert insight into the complex college admission landscape. I'm Mike, a college admission counselor at Ivy Wise and former assistant director of admission at Stanford University. And joining me today is my fellow Ivy Wise colleague, Chris, who is a former associate dean of admission at Wesleyan University. The 2021-22 college admission cycle was one of the most competitive ones to date, with many universities across the U.S. reporting overwhelming increases in applications and historically low acceptance rates. In this episode, Chris and I are going to review the most recent application cycle and share our predictions and top tips about upcoming admission seasons. Now, I wanted to kick off this conversation just explaining um, some of the reasons why application numbers rose this past admission cycle. Um, the first thing that comes to mind is the uh, continued use of test optional policies that may have encouraged students to apply to elite universities um, where students in the past uh, may not have submitted their application because they felt colleges are out of the league. Uh, for example, I'm based out here in California and the University of California system has a test-free admission process, which means they won't even look at your SAT or ACT score when making admission decisions or awarding scholarships. And um, in the UC system, applications have risen again um, to, uh, it rose by 3.5%, which is an all-time high. And uh, they read over 210,000 applications, if you can believe it. Um, another reason why applications continue to soar is that many students are concerned about uncertainty with college admissions. So they tend to apply to more colleges than, than they may have in the past. Um, according to the Common App, which many universities use um, for students to apply to their institutions, the number of applications submitted um, per applicant was 5.62, um, which is is an increase from the 2019 and 2020 uh, uh, application process. The common application also announced that applications to highly selective colleges increased 25% over the past year. And even some of the big name schools like Princeton, uh, University of Pennsylvania and Stanford no longer uh, announce admission decision rates because it's so minuscule and uh, to avoid discouraging students from applying. Um, so those are the reasons why um, applications continue to soar. Um, Chris, I don't know if you have any thoughts um, just from on the ground um, to explain in a little bit well, why you think this is the case that there's, you know, it's more competitive now than um, when we made apply to college. Yeah, I think there. You know, you, you've hit on a couple of the of the really important ones, Mike. And um, you know, I think I, you know, I think about Stanford and Ed All's decision to kind of not release that information anymore, and you know, years of of you know doing information sessions and talking to prospective students uh, uh, as an associate dean at Wesley. And I often wondered about you know sort of the value of 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 what felt like bragging sometimes about how selective we were and how hard it was to get into Wesley. And, and you know, doesn't that discourage students from from applying on some level? So, um, you know, the decision by those schools to kind of not uh, publicize those rates, I think, can be really healthy. And I think that's a, 
uh, in a positive step. Um, you know, uh, at my former institution, Wesleyan University, um, in the previous cycle, um, you know, we saw an 11.13% uh, increase in applications um, from the prior year. Um, and, you know, our, our acceptance rate accordingly dropped about six points from about 20% to a, a little under 14%. Um, and, uh, you know, that's the, the math of, uh, of the college admission process, right? Um, kind of a stagnant number of seats for students to occupy um, and an increasing number of applications every year. And that's attributable to a lot of factors. And I think, you know, there are a lot of guilty parties uh, uh, involved in that. Obviously, um, colleges continue to try to generate as many applications as possible um, for lots of reasons, uh, you know, both uh, uh, really good, really understandable, and maybe um, a little less uh, uh, appealing. Um, uh, you know, you want to have a, a really strong applicant pool and be able to choose from among the best possible students to populate that first year class. But boy, having more applications sure does make you more selective, right? Um, yeah. So as we tried to deal with, you know, uh, thousands more applications uh, from the prior year, our staff remained the same size. Um, we had had, as is often the case in college admission offices, some turnover with some of the younger deans. Uh, and so we're training some new people. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, we, we thought of different ways to try to approach the application reason and how to get through that volume of work. Um, and, uh, you know, we managed to do it and, and, and college is always well. Um, but it's, uh, it's certainly something that's uh, kind of kind of on the horizon, uh, um, you know, uh, for, for all of you who are thinking about, you know, applying to college in the next few years, um, is this sort of ever-increasing uh, selectivity that, that schools are facing. Yeah, yeah. You know, one thing you noted that I was meaning to mention is that, um, you know, there, there's a, it's been a continued increase at many universities in terms of um, number of applications to receive. And on the flip side, from the institution uh, perspective, they aren't necessarily increasing the amount of students they admitted. Um, I know in uh, my alma mater is University of California, Berkeley. And I believe uh, I was reading some articles about the institution wanting to increase the um, admitted student class, increase the undergraduate student body, but there's actually pushback because um, uh, local residents don't want further dormitories, for example. So there's definitely a tension in place. Yeah, no doubt. And, and also out at Cal, right, those those students are taking away housing from locals as well. Um, and, uh, you know, so, you know, rents go up and, and students uh, can maybe afford it uh, more so than uh, a low-income local resident. So that does have a lot of impact, that increase in uh, student body size. Obviously, at a place like Cal, that's a, it has a much bigger impact at a school than perhaps if Amherst, you know, decided to have a, a freshman class or first year class that was 20 more students, um, you wouldn't see that kind of impact. So, um, you know, it's certainly about the size of the school and things like that, um, that uh, that has that kind of impact. As a former Berkeley resident many years ago, um, I, I remember well, um, you know, uh, just sort of the, the apartment hunt and, and what that was like. Uh, uh, my wife was a graduate student there at the time. So, um, you know, one of the things that uh, really um, impacts uh, how hard it is to get into college um, is, in fact, one of the things that everybody should be aware of about uh, how, how to get into college. And that is um, sort of the, the, the role that early decision and early action play. Um, colleges offer a variety of rounds for students to apply in um, that start as early as November. 
um, and can uh, you know be as late as the middle of January as far as deadlines go. Um, there's also a rolling admission uh, plan at some schools where you apply whenever you're ready to, and within a particularly prescribed period, you're going to get your decision from them. Um, uh, and, and that's not as prevalent among the more selective schools. Uh, so I think for our audience today, um, you know, the, the focus on early decision and early action really is is kind of what's important here. So let me just run that down a little bit. Um, and Mike, feel free to jump in if there's something I'm missing or uh, you, uh, you have uh, something to add to that. But, um, you know, early decision, uh, more commonly referred to as ED, um, is, a, is an opportunity for a student to identify a top choice school to uh, do their research, presumably, um, and uh, and decide that they have a, a top choice place that they want to apply. And that institution has an early decision program. Those are binding. So if they admit you, you will go, uh, is, is kind of the agreement that you enter into there. And by applying an early decision, you are really, you know, it's really the only way you can indicate, I think, in the college admission process, what a first choice school is. Um, I wish, I really do wish I had a nickel for every email I received in three decades saying, you know, after early decision was over, telling me Wesleyan was there was a student's top choice um, because uh, I would have retired a little bit earlier, I think, had I had that kind of supplementary income. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, early decision is, is the best opportunity and the only opportunity a student really has to say definitively, this is my first choice. Early action rounds um, also uh, occur earlier in the process, um, but tend to be non-binding. There are a couple of um, uh, uh, different programs there. Um, single choice early action, uh, where an institution says you can apply here early action. If you're admitted, we'll hold your seat for you, but you can't apply early action anywhere else. Um, then there's restrictive early action, which is a similar kind of policy. What an early action uh, decision does, if it's favorable, is allow you to call Harvard your safety, right? I got an EA to Harvard. I've got a seat. I can uh, go ahead and, uh, um, you know, uh, proceed through the process knowing safely I've got a, a pretty good school to go to. Um, and, and, you know, colleges offer these rounds for a variety of reasons, um, you know, and, and they can be great for students. There's no doubt about it. I have one of my one of my kids went early decision. Um, and, you know, it was done in December and was able to really kind of focus on that senior year. And, and my other kid um, ended up going through the regular decision process and, you know, worked out great. But uh, it was a different sort of um, experience for him uh, to sort of, you know, continue to be focused on the college process throughout the senior year. So there are advantages for students, not the least of which is the chance to have a really great senior year and enjoy that last year of high school and not sweat the college process. And there are clear advantages for colleges and universities as well. Um, you know, there are kind of two magic numbers uh, in, in the admission world, uh, selectivity and yield. Selectivity is the number of students admitted out of how many apply, and colleges want that to be very, very small. Um, and, uh, and then yield is the number uh, of those students, of those admitted, how many choose that particular school. Um, and they want that number to be very, very high. These are, uh, you know, ostensibly measures of excellence um, and not just dorm rooms and food, um, right? But uh, they, they, are, they are clearly important measures um, in the world of, uh, of college admission. Um, and uh, as more and more students apply each year, um, it gets more and more challenging uh, for admission committees to make those selections. Again, when you see a 10% increase in your applicant pool and those students are competitive students in your applicant pool, um, uh, and they're all in regular decision, 
You're going to admit a number that you think is what you need to yield your class. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about the wait list down the road. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of, you know, combining a little art and science and trying to come up with a number that you think is going to yield you your first year class. Um, and you can impact that uh, with, uh, uh, with, with using early decision uh, as a way to kind of um, tweak those numbers, right? So um, if you admit 40% uh, of your class in early decision, then you're looking for 60% in regular decision, and that means a certain number of admits. But if you've admitted 50% of your uh, students in early decision, now you're looking for 10% less, and um, that's they're no longer one for one. So, you know, I'll use Wesleyan as an example. Um, you know, Harvard's yield, by the way, is about 83%, just to give you a, a sense of, uh, uh, of, you know, where the big boys play. Um, and at Wesleyan, uh, you know, a good year in regular decision for was about 40% yield uh, for, uh, for us. And um, uh, uh, so uh, you for Wesley and then we would have to admit, you know, maybe six students to fill that seat, five or six students to fill a seat. Um, and uh, uh, if you have filled that seat in early decision, um, that's uh, five less offers you have to make, improves your selectivity and improves your yield. Um, so, uh, Mike, have you um, kind of uh, been able to, to successfully articulate that difference to some of your counselees and help them understand the importance of early applications? Yeah, I think it's critical. It's um, like you mentioned, it's like one of the tools that students have in this highly competitive uh, you know, uh, landscape. And so when I talk to students, um, you know, this conversation typically comes up um, end of junior year we, um, when we're starting to finalize our college list. So we have a conversation on, you know, um, uh, what schools are you considering for early admission? And we'll have a conversation on what what is realistic because it's, you know, um, think of it as that, that uh, um, one tool you have that can help you strategically with admissions, because as you mentioned, um, you know, like for, for some schools, they might admit more than 50% of their under entire uh, entering first year class from early decision. So um, I have a conversation with students on being strategic with it um, and being mindful of what are the different early admission programs. You know, some schools might like University of Chicago has ED1 and ED2, uh, for example. So there's some strategy involved. But it's it's difficult for students because um, you know they have their dream school and um, sometimes it may not be a realistic option for them, but they still want to apply. So um, yeah, it's 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 a tool that I really encourage um, our listeners to consider and learn more about because the reality is you know you, you might have an overall admit rate of ten percent, but in regular decision that might be five percent because they they already filled half of their class, um, for example. Yeah, and then that's an interesting point you make. I think about sort of how do you how do you play that early card? Um, do you really go for that super reach school that you know you're you really think is is a is a huge long shot because hey, stranger things have happened, um, uh, or do you really kind of use it to um, land at the school that you know uh, you think is going to be the best fit and provide you with the best academic experience, et cetera? Um, you know, and I think uh, there's a temptation to to go big and early. Um, and uh, I understand that as well. Um, you know, uh, who doesn't want to go to Stanford on some levels, right? Palm, <laughs> yeah. palm trees and all that, right? You know, and there, I think they're currently negative forty-seven percent or something like that in their admission rate. So um, that's a joke, gang. Um, they're not really that hard to get into, uh, and uh, uh, it's it's an interesting choice that, that students and families have to make about ED. 
Um, but to just give you a little bit of an idea, kind of, you know, the difference, um, uh, you know, uh, for example, um, at Williams uh, uh, for the class of 2026, they took about uh, early decision admission rate was about 31 percent and it was about seven and a half percent in regular decision. Uh, Vanderbilt um, was about 24 uh, percent in AD and about five percent in regular decision. Um, I think one of the things that goes unsaid about ED is that the applicant pools are often quite strong as well. Um, you know, there is a, a, every couple of three years, it feels like the media decides to demonize early decision in, in some articles and stuff. Um, it's the worst thing that ever happened and et cetera, et cetera. But I think what goes unmentioned in a lot of those is the parity of those applicant pools. Um, and that in fact, the students who are applying an early decision are you know every bit as qualified um, as uh, uh, as the students who are applying in regular? Um, they've just you know gotten gotten their, their their act together a little bit more quickly and, and are ready to kind of take that plunge. Um, you know, every couple of years they say, oh, it's worth three hundred points on you know on the SAT. And of course, now with the prevalence of test optional uh, uh, schools, we kind of say, who cares? Um, but. Uh, uh, that's certainly, you know, um, uh, a factor is, you know, just the, the, the difference in, in admission rates between early and regular is something to, to bear in mind. And, the, you know, a couple other quick tidbits about early before we kind of move along here. But, um, you know, that's often uh, uh, the part of the admission cycle where institutions are looking at students who have a hook. That might be someone who is, um, uh, you know, whose parent uh, attended the college as a legacy applicant. And that's certainly something that's getting a lot of immediate attention these days, um, rightfully so from my perspective. Um, and uh, or, or a lot of schools will also um, do a lot of their work with their athletic programs uh, in early decision. Um, and uh, uh, while there is, I would say, you know, if you asked outright, you know, is there a cap on how many students you'll take in early decision? Um, I don't think anybody's going to give you a hard and fast answer to that, but um, because you don't know what your applicant pool is going to look like and, and, and sort of what your institutional priorities are going to be um, until you get there. But um, uh, it's, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a number that's increasing. Um, and then there are a couple other hidden kind of uh, uh, early programs that um, a lot of people may not be aware of, but that are really important to the makeup of, uh, of some of these schools. Um, Questbridge is a program for low income uh, students, uh, uh, many of whom are first generation. Uh, it's uh, probably about 35 partner colleges now that agree to admit a cohort of Questbridge students every year through a different application process. That's binding. That happens before early decision. Um, there are uh, another program is known as Posse. Um, which is for underrepresented students and uh, um, kind of seats uh, 10 students per college, again, prior to early decision. Um, so you kind of take all of those and, and roll them up all together. Um, you might see an early decision figure on a website that says, you know, 43 percent, um, but uh, kind of hidden uh, and not in that might be some of these other students as well. Um, you know, and I think that um, transparency is really important. And I think that most College admission officers feel that way, and I think you know when you when you're trying to suss that out at a at a particular school, that that's a totally legitimate question to ask. Um, you know, does do you participate in any other kind of binding programs, and are those numbers in your early decision numbers? As I try to kind of factor in uh, my chances here, so um, some things to remember about that as well. Um, and uh, you know, I think that the 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 early trend will continue, and I think it's something that. 
our listeners today really um, need to, to really factor in, into their strategies. Yeah. Um, one thing, you know, from what you've been saying, it just made me think about is, um, you know, um, comparing, you know, uh, COVID happened in 2020. So I'm thinking about just because uh, from what you've been saying, it's really just thinking about how colleges handle enrollment management, making sure they have enough seats, um, uh, you know, for students um, in the admission process. So I know for like the 2019, 2020 uh, admission process, it it it, it might be an anomaly in terms of how they admitted students, for example, in early admission, perhaps they might have been more aggressive with um, early admission because they didn't know what enrollment might look like, right, um, for fall 2020. And um, I, you know, just from, uh, I don't have, it's more anecdotal evidence, but um, I've, I've heard a lot during that cycle, students um, taking a gap year, taking a year off because they didn't want to do online learning, for example. And so, um, you know, as we move forward, this will be, you know, um, the fall 2021-2022 um, cycles over. And so it's sort of, in, in, at least in my view, kind of evening out a little bit in terms of that funkiness of that 2019-2020 um, school uh, admission year. At the same time, I do think that um, colleges are being more strategic with um, how how they're using early. You know, we'll talk about, um, we didn't really talk too much about deferrals. Um, I know we'll talk about wait lists a little bit later. So it's just something that I just wanted to throw out there. And I know um, from our conversations offline, that's something that's been on your mind too, just like the impact of COVID and kind of returning to some semblance of whatever whatever normal, normal is in the admission process. Yeah, you're you're 100 right, Mike. The um the the whole pandemic just wreaked havoc on the college admission process, and obviously, that's not just you know I'm not trying to you know, engender sympathy for for colleges and universities. Everybody had to go through what they had to go through, and it wreaked havoc on the high school experience as well. And I think I think college admission committees were really great about factoring that in um, when that was going on, understanding that extracurriculars have, you know, ceased to exist and that students learn differently in person and remotely. And that, um, you know, and that, and that frankly, the grading was easier, um, you know, for a lot at a lot of places um, uh, in, in terms of just saying, you know, you can't really penalize this student um, for the circumstances we all find ourselves in. And so there was a lot of havoc uh, around uh, around COVID-19 and, and, and the way that played into the admission process. And I think that um, that's, I think, you know, a good example. It was a really hard time, but I think it's a good example and a, and a testament to kind of the commitment of the of the industry, so to speak, of the of the professionals in college admissions on both sides of the desk. But there was a lot of communication and a lot of transparency around that. And it is nice to feel like we're coming out of that. Right. But but the students who are applying this year were in high school then, too, um, and uh, were impacted a little bit as well. They were younger. It didn't impact their college search, et cetera, in the same way. Um, but it definitely wreaked a lot of havoc at Wesleyan. We found it incredibly hard to predict what was going to happen um, and, uh, um, you know, and ended up with uh, a, a ridiculously uh, oversized class. Um, part of that, I think, were policies that were really helpful to students. Um, for example, Wesleyan at the time, um, you know, gave any student who wanted it a one semester deferral, no questions asked. Um, if you wanted to start in January, you could do that. Um, and that a lot of students took us up on that. And that, of course, had impact in subsequent classes. Um, 
So, you know, I think all of that's kind of settling down and we're kind of coming out of that out of that moment. And I think that colleges and universities are positioned now to kind of return to normal to the degree that they want to. Right. And part of that is um, about uh, standardized testing and, and those policies and how they've changed. Um, but I'll just take one second to, to you know, um, remind people that another huge impact of this was the way that um, access to information about colleges uh, uh, migrated to a, to a remote and virtual world. And um, so much of what colleges and universities offer you now in terms of research and, and, and learning about their schools can be done, you know, from 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 your bedroom, you know, from from your desk and, uh, um, you know, virtual information sessions, virtual campus tours, uh, different ways to connect with current students to talk to them about their experiences. Um, and that's been really one of the great byproducts of, of all of this is um, how colleges pivoted and um, are staying there uh, to the great benefit of students, especially students who don't have the, the resources and wherewithal to get out on the road and do a attend school visit. Nothing like boots on the ground, nothing like walking around a campus and talking to people to get a sense of what it's like. But in lieu of that, to be able to have conversations with current students and to really get a sense of a place in real time has been um, really, really helpful. And I expect some of your students, Mike, have, have really benefited from that in the last couple of years. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, I have some students who are, uh, you know, a different country, unable to visit for a variety of reasons. And I, I think the the pandemic, one, one of the effects of it is that colleges are thinking um, strategically on what what does um, recruitment look like and how do we engage students, um, uh, you know, in term, and what's an effective way to recruit students, you, you know, uh, virtual tours, yeah, the, you know, they're going back to on-campus tours now. And and I'm glad that they're continuing that because um, I think when I look at the impact on admissions um, during the pandemic, I, I think a lot about access because as you mentioned, recruitments, they've revisited what that actually looks like. And I know we're gonna talk a little bit about standardized testing. I think that has increased access as well. You know, I mentioned earlier on this podcast, that the University of California system, they, they're not gonna look at your test scores. So um, like the UC application, if you fill out the application, you write some essays, and then all you really need to do is check the box on like UCLA, Berkeley, San Diego, whatever the school is. And so that might've empowered some students who may not have thought they'd be competitive for UCLA. Like, I'm gonna throw my hat in the ring and I'm gonna see what happens. So um, yeah, I, I think there has been, you know, the, uh, a lot of impact that we're we're going to continue to, to to feel moving forward as we're um, you know transitioning out of um, you know the the brunts of the pandemic. Yeah, I mean it's uh, um, there's so many changes, um, some that are you know sticking around and some that aren't, and certainly the standardized testing landscape is shifting as you know. Um, you know, you see test blind or test free uh, option, um, you know, and policy. Uh, you know, some schools, a lot of a lot of schools and colleges and universities have been talking about the role that testing plays, you know, for a long time. And, and some schools have been test optional, um, you know, for for decades. Bates College in Lewiston, Maine, great little liberal arts uh, school, um, you know, has, has really been one of the leaders in this. I think they've been test optional for 30 years now at this point and have really helped a lot of other colleges and universities with this sort of longitudinal study about success at Bates. 
um, uh, uh, and and really the role that that standardized testing plays in success at college, right? And and so hence, what's the value that you know, kind of impacts the value of that, or um, uh, kind of uh, uh, sort of helps to uh, uh, reveal a little bit more about the value of standardized testing in the process. Um, and uh, so lots of schools have been having these conversations about the role that, that standardized testing can play. Um, and I think what, you know, test blind policies do or say we do not believe in the efficacy of this um, in, in our process. Uh, and test optional schools are saying, hey, um, put your best foot forward. If you feel that your standardized testing is a strength of your application and you want to include it, we'll look at it, we'll use it, um, we'll factor it into our decision. And if you don't, then you're not penalized for that. Um, and that's one thing I would tell everybody who's listening is this is not a trick. Schools that are saying, you know, giving you that choice of submitting standardized testing are not snickering behind closed doors saying, well, I bet they're really, you know, lower scores. Um, they're just evaluating your application without standardized testing. And uh, um, I think it's really important that, um, you know, our listeners understand that, that this is, this is really a, uh, you know, uh, uh, just a, a way for students to put their best foot forward. And um, lots and lots of colleges, obviously spurred by the pandemic and the lack of testing availability, right? You know, um, I, I know students who, you know, lived in LA and got on a plane to Nevada so they could go take a, an SAT, right? And obviously they have the resources to do that and other students don't. Um, and, and so the availability of testing really um, drove a lot of this. Um, but uh, you know, for the 21-22 admission cycle, about 80% of colleges and universities had some kind of test optional or test blind policy. Um, now, as we get to July of 2022, uh, that number is down to about 60%. Um, and uh, um, you know, there are uh, so some schools are kind of uh, you know reverting to their to their policy back to requiring testing and their old policies, and some have just merely adapted theirs. Um, reflecting on what that has meant, uh, what those policies meant uh, in the interim years, and and you know what what how it impacted their ability to to put together the the best uh, the best class possible. Um, so and students obviously you know um, made a lot of choices as well as you point out, Mike. Right, the um, you know uh, uh, in in the previous cycle, about half of uh, applicants using the Common Application applied with test scores. And you know, back in the 2019-2020 cycle, uh, before COVID, there were about 80% of applicants uh, were submitting test scores um, uh, using the Common App. Um, again, most schools are going to announce their policies for the coming year. Um, uh, at this juncture, uh, you know, as they transition back from COVID policies or maintain their COVID policies for one more year. So if you're a junior or younger, uh, or have a child, a student who's a junior or younger, um, that's just one of the things you're gonna wanna keep track of. Um, and obviously the best source of information will be the website of the, of the particular school. Um, and uh, uh, keep an eye out for announcements from them. Um, if your student is on their email distribution list, that's something that they're gonna be sure everybody knows um, as soon as they've made those decisions. But those are still, um, uh, uh, you know, decisions that are in flux for a lot of places. And um, uh, you see some that are retaining these policies and others uh, are returning, you know, so MIT, um, the University of Georgia system, uh, they've already returned to uh, their prior uh, test policies. So um, it gets confusing now, right, Mike, when you're when you're working with students and trying to help them sort that out when they're looking at maybe 10 or 12 schools. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I just tell students um, to 
to make the assumption that you will take standardized testing at some point. And when they get to senior year, we're all assess one, whether or not we should submit test scores for particular schools um, and to look at the schools and look at their policies. Cause um, I have, for example, I have a rising ninth grader and I don't have a crystal ball and none of us do. So we don't know what the testing policies are gonna be um, when she applies in uh, what, like three years from now. So um, I, I think that for any family, they should just have that plan in place so that they don't, uh, you know, when they come to senior year, they're not scrambling to have a testing plan in place um, you know, during senior year, because it's going to be a busy school year for sure. Yeah, um, point to, to plan ahead there. Yeah, yeah. And I know we're uh, coming up on time. So I, I just wanted to lightly touch on, um, you know, I, I think it's been a great conversation um, around how colleges make admission decisions, that the many factors that play into the process, as well as how uh, college admission is um, transitioning uh, from the from the brunt of the pandemic to now, and um, one thing that comes to mind for me is uh, our, our uh, how colleges use the wait list. And um, anecdotally, what I've seen is that colleges have been very liberal with applying wait lists because wait lists is really an enrollment management tool. Because um, you mentioned earlier some of the yield rates of colleges. Um, and they they use past yield rates to determine um, project how many students are good, they're gonna are are, are gonna enroll because if they over enroll students there might be some issues with housing for example and so um, I see colleges using wait lists more liberally to um, one just to kind of um, <clears throat> uh, fill in any gaps in enrollments um, you know there might be students who last minute um, you know this term summer melt students changing their mind, going to another school, or they get off a wait list somewhere else. And so they they rescind um, their spot um, at the university. So I see a lot of colleges will continue to use wait lists um, for that sense. And also just with, um, you know, it, it, it can also be seen as a tool for shaping a class because I tell students, um, colleges want specialist, angler, pointy students. Um, but they want a well-rounded student body. So, um, you know, for example, they might look at their um, their first year enrollment numbers and see there might be an underrepresentation in uh, either gender or major or demographics. And so they might pull someone off the wait list who might fill um, um, that gap in their, um, you know, student profile, for example. So I think that's yeah, something families need. That alarming lack of left-handed tuba players from west of the Mississippi, right? Uh, yeah, got to fill that void, right? Yeah, got to have that. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's funny. Uh, it's funny you mentioned it because I, because I, um, you know, I do webinars about this, and I always try to tell students you, you can't predict what the institutional needs are of the college. So, um, you know, I, I use that example of like, uh, you know, being a, a flautist, and you you won't know what the college's needs. So just be you. And um, be mindful when you're accepting waitlists on how you respond to that offer of a waitlist because um, colleges do look at that. I remember in my Stanford days, I would look at did they submit an update on their waitlist? Because sometimes students just check the box and that's it. And um, on some level, um, I, at least for, for me, I wanted to know if I'm going to take someone off the waitlist that they're going to enroll because if you'd offer a waitlist 
and then there's no response. You're just delaying that because um, at that point, colleges want to wrap up um, the upcoming entering uh, first year class and then move on to the next class. Yeah, and I think it's a, another really great point that, um, you know, if, if you find yourself um, uh, on a waiting list to the school uh, that you'd like to attend and you've got a good option and you need to deposit and, and take that option and, and always remember that the school that you're depositing at, you applied to for a reason, right? There are lots of good reasons that you looked at that school in the first place. It's going to be a good fit. You're going to go have a good experience, but maybe you just, you know, you covet this other place a little bit more um, and uh, ask them what they want from you. Right now in the world of electronic response, it's a really easy knee jerk reaction to say, yes, I'll stay on the wait list. Um, but to follow that up with what the college is looking for. Right. Um, you know, uh, it's and it's not an email every day to your particular dean or director. Um, it's you know, it's a particular type of follow up that they're looking for. Um, and they're going to be happy to tell you what that is if it doesn't come in some kind of fact with uh, that wait list decision. Um, just want to mention there are a lot of changes coming to the SAT uh, as it migrates to a, a computer-based exam. Um, and uh, um, there's a lot of information that's still developing around that. But I just wanted to alert our listeners that on August 22nd, there will be another Ivy Wise webinar um, that's going to take a really deeper look into those changes. So if you want to make a note of that, um, there are some really significant things that are going to change about the SAT and perhaps the ACT moving forward, um, you know, and if uh, uh, one of the one of the really great services I think IvyWise provides you with is uh, a diagnostic uh, testing um, program uh, for both the ACT and the SAT um, that is really, really helpful in figuring out which exam you should focus on. Um, so uh, I encourage you guys to, uh, to, to listen in on the 22nd and um, uh, learn what, what you can about the, the changes to standardized testing. Um, and uh, a little bit more about maybe the way Ivy Wise can uh, can help you. Um, we are really close to the end of our of our allotted time here. Um, it's amazing time flies, right? When you're chatting away, um, and we all know admission people can talk. But uh, I just want to hit touch really really quickly on the role that international admissions plays. Um, you know, really briefly, um, uh, lots of colleges and universities for lots of really good reasons, are looking to increase their international representation on their campus. It provides uh, a whole other level of diversity in terms of worldview. Um, I know that we were always very cognizant at Wesleyan of what was happening in the world and what it meant to be coming from uh, a particular hotspot at a particular time. Um, and uh, our president uh, had indicated that he, he wanted to see an increase in international students. Um, and so that's another, you know, kind of... Uh, uh, metric in the process that impacts um, how hard it is going to be to get in. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, there was clearly a small decrease in the international uh, uh, application pool um, with COVID and with the pandemic and the difficulties of traveling, but there's really a rebound now happening. Um, and, uh, you know, for international students, some of the things we've already talked about can combine to, um, you know, have, have a real uh, influence on um, uh, in the application, right? Uh, so if you are an international applicant who is not seeking any kind of financial aid and you apply in an early decision program, um, you're ringing a few bells uh, for a college or a university there. Um, you can increase your percentage of inter international students with you know, one, one, a one-to-one -one offer, right? That kind of one-to-one -one yield, which not incidentally is kind of what the wait list is as well. As Mike pointed out, I'm going to ask you, you're going to take it, 
that's a one for one. Um, but uh, you increase your percentage of international students, you can add diversity to your student body. Um, yeah, that is, again, going to contribute to enhanced selectivity and yield, and you're not depleting your financial aid resources. So just another factor that is making this process more competitive moving forward. Um, and as we look back, we see that that has, um, uh, you know, um, rebounded after, I think, kind of a lull in, uh, in the COVID process. So, Mike, um, anything else you want to throw out here uh, before we before we sign off? It's been a, it's been a lot of fun talking with you. Yeah, you know, the, it, it flew by. I know uh, before this call, we're like, we might you might get 30 minutes. I, I feel like we <laughs> we could fill this with two hours. So um, I think we, we gave our listeners a lot to chew on. And as you mentioned, um, I've a lot, lot of resources, upcoming webinar you mentioned. And then there's even a um uh, a, a database where you can search some of these topics if you want to look more in depth on um, some some of the topics we, we touched on today. Yeah, um, that's that's a great point. So you know, for our listeners, thanks so much for joining us. We're gonna we're gonna wrap it up here, and uh, we really appreciate you tuning in to Just Admit It. There are a variety of these uh, podcasts available um, on the podcast page at Ivy Wise and. Uh, uh, Mike uh, alluded to Knowledge Base, uh, also on the IBOI's webpage. That's a great one to bookmark. Um, there's a lot of additional information and help there to kind of navigating uh, the process, especially at this, you know, uh, increasingly busy time as we head out of the summer ah, and back to school, um, you know, uh, for students who are, you know, juniors and seniors who are now really engaging in the process things get really busy. So there's a lot of uh, good ways to get that information, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, uh, for kind of higher ed resources. Um, um, you can send an email to podcast at ivywise.com and put that question out there so uh, our colleagues can try to address that uh, in, in the next uh, episode. Mike, thanks very much for your time. I look forward to connecting with you down the road. And uh, thanks everybody for listening. Have a great day. 